0: Welcome to the Just Ingredients Podcast. I'm Cara Lynn, and here we talk all things nourishing to the mind, body, and soul. This is a place where you can find just good ingredients to life. Kettle and fire bone broths are one of the products that has a permanent place on my pantry shelf. As you know, I am a big fan of making food from scratch, and I love making food with bone broth as well. Caveat, assuming you can find high-quality grass-fed and finished bones. But if you're like me, you don't always have the time and or foresight to make your own bone broth from scratch. That is why I always have some kettle and fire on hand for when I want a quick, delicious, high-quality bone broth. Their broths are always made with organic veggies, herbs, and spices, and they only use grass-fed and finished beef bones and pasture-raised chicken bones. They never use anything artificial, no preservatives, no coloring, no flavorings, no junk ever. That is why I'm happy to be partnering with them for my podcast. They are a company that I can rely on to make high-integrity products. As a listener, you can save 25% off any of their products at kettleandfire.com. Just use code JUSTINGREDIENTS at checkout. That is kettleandfire.com. K e t t l e a n d fire.com Dr. Benjamin Bickman earned his PhD in bioenergetics and was a postdoctoral fellow with the Duke National University of Singapore in metabolic disorders. Currently, his professional focus as a scientist and professor at Brigham Young University is to better understand the role of elevated insulin in regulating obesity and diabetes, including the relevance of ketones and mitochondrial function. Welcome, Dr. Bickman, to our show. I am so um, honored to have you here on our show, and I really appreciate you t- taking the time to be here.
1: My pleasure. Please call me Ben Carlin. It's a delight.
0: Well, thank you so much. I, I've learned a ton from following you. Um, I've even listened to one of your speeches um, that you did at BYU that was amazing on insulin resistance. I've learned a ton about insulin resistance from following you on Instagram. So I'm really excited to have my followers just be educated on this issue that we have today. But before we get begin, will you just tell my followers a little bit about yourself, your background, and how you actually got into studying um, insulin resistance?
1: Yeah, yeah. How did I become an expert in in what is both the most common problem and yet one uh, people almost know nothing about? Right, right? That, right. That's that's kind of the irony of of this or the paradox of of insulin resistance. So my background, uh, academically, um, was, well, it started as a, as a student, as an undergraduate, and I had just gotten married and yet I was just now nearing the end of my undergraduate time and, and faced with this <clears throat> early life crisis for lack of a better word, but, but truly in my, in my early twenties at uh, 23, I, it really felt like a crisis. It was the biggest, um, Problem I've ever had to deal with, which was what am I going to do with my life? I, I anticipated being—we—I uh, was just married, so I was already a husband. I was anticipating being a father, and the the weight of that future um, uh, uh, duty, or that you know that those responsibilities that I would have, really started settling on me, and and it was a matter of tremendous. Um, thinking and, and, well, prayer, to be be frank. And I was struck by the lifestyle that I noticed among my professors. And I thought, that's a lifestyle I would like. And then that happening around the same time, I realized there were still actual scientists studying the human body. I naively thought in the early, early 2000s, I thought, we already know everything. There's no (laughs) such thing as actual, you know, life scientists or biologists studying the human body. And I was, I was completely blown away by the fact that there were true scientists still studying the body. I thought we'd already knew. I, I thought we already knew everything. There That's was, awesome. You know. So yeah. Yeah. So that those two things kind of merged at the same time in my mind. And that, that began this career of wanting to study the body. And then around that same time, I stumbled across a a scientific manuscript that had just recently been published, you know, more evidence that this was still an active breathing area of research where this, uh, and I was always interested in the body and human health. And this study found that as fat cells grow, they become pro-inflammatory and it was this increased inflammation in the body that was then leading to insulin resistance, which was the foundation of type two diabetes. So there's several pieces that I just kind of put together here, but essentially that there was this phenomenon known known as insulin resistance that was connecting these two twin epidemics, obesity and diabetes. Because of course they always go, type two diabetes, they always go together. And insulin resistance was the great mediator. That was the focus of my PhD. Um, What is it about insulin resistance? Um, with fat cells causing, uh, causing, uh, well, what is it about fat cells that drive insulin resistance? And then my postdoctoral work was looking more specifically at inflammation and the role of different fats in kind of driving that inflammation to then cause insulin resistance. And then now that I've had my own lab as an independent scientist and professor for the past 10 years, it's really been just diving more deeply into not only the origins of insulin resistance, um, Uh, And and many other topics as well, but also insulin resistance in areas that once upon a time were totally overlooked, like in the brain causing Alzheimer's or in um, with regards to sexual function causing infertility. So there are many aspects and we'll get into all of that, but that's kind of the journey that I took. It was this early life crisis to want to do a career that would allow me to be a very devoted family man um, and then combining that with something that I, I really thought was interesting and would provide a good living for my family. And then now uh, looking back, um, studying a disease, insulin resistance, that truly has become the single most common health problem. And so it's one that I am very passionate about where I'm happy to talk about. It. I'm genuinely glad for new venues like this because I think, all right, this is a whole new audience that is going to leave at the end of this hour and know um, what is in fact the single most common problem, how to look for it and what to do about it.
0: Wow, that's a fascinating journey. And I love that um, you took that role to go study insulin resistance and you're right. It is a huge issue today, but yet not many know exactly what insulin resistance is or how it's affecting them. So let's start at the very beginning for my listeners. Let's just start with the basics. What is insulin resistance
1: mm-hmm yeah in fact let's carlin let's even define insulin the hormone itself so insulin is a hormone that we're all making we have a, a little gland kind of tucked underneath our stomach called the pancreas and on the pancreas there's all kinds of different types of cells and some of these cells are called beta cells and they're making insulin releasing the insulin into our bloodstream every minute of the day unless a person is a type one diabetic in type one diabetes. That is where the body's immune system, it's an autoimmune disease. So the immune system has attacked itself, it's its own body and specifically the attack has happened at the beta cells. So in a type one diabetic, they've had the autoimmune destruction of their beta cells. Now they have no insulin and you need, and so the person has to inject insulin. Now that is not the same as type two and we could get into that later whereas type one diabetes is a disease of no insulin type two is actually a disease of too much. It's just not working well. And then in fact, that's a nice segue to get into insulin resistance, but just to finally kind of really define insulin itself, insulin's main action as a hormone, because hormones are just little signals moving from one cell to other cells in the body. Every hormone would fit that description. Insulin does as well, so insulin's main effect, or rather its most famous effect, is to control glucose in the blood. And everyone knows about blood sugar or blood glucose. That's just an energy source in in the blood, and of course it's coming. We I, we're making it all the time when, when we need to, the liver um, can make glucose or we're eating it, which we nowadays do, I would say far too much (laughs) where we're eating starchy or sugary foods. So when we eat something that's starchy and sugary, that gets rapidly metabolized into glucose. And so the glucose levels in our blood will go very high. That is potentially lethal. If the glucose stayed really high for too long, it would start to hurt the body. And so insulin will then be released And insulin essentially opens doors into cells, especially muscle cells and fat cells. So when the glucose is up, insulin will come into the blood and kind of goes to the doorways on the muscle and the fat cells, knocks on these doors, opens the doors, and now the glucose can come from the blood into the muscle and the fat. And then the doors will close, Insulin's done its job. It comes away from the door. And now the glucose levels have come down in the blood because insulin ushered the glucose out of the blood into the body's cells. Now, having said that, so insulin's main effect is to lower the glucose or it's, it's most famous effect uh, because the fact is insulin has an effect on literally every single cell in the body from, from brain cells, to bone cells, from lung cells, to liver cells, every single cell, will respond to insulin in some way. And that is how, that's why insulin is so relevant um, when it's not working well in, in cases like dementia or heart disease or infertility that we can get into later. So, and that now is a good segue into insulin resistance. Insulin resistance affects potentially 88% of all adults in the US. So this wow. is by far, yeah, this is by far, That that was a a paper published uh, three years ago by the School of Public Health at U- at University of North Carolina where, where almost nine in ten uh, adults have some form of some kind of measurement or detectable level of insulin resistance. so it is by far the most common health problem in the country. Now a lot of people think well that's just an American problem because we eat so poorly that it couldn't be further from the truth. There are countries where it's actually worse. I've given talks on insulin resistance, literally around the world, um, in, in places like the Middle East and Southeast Asia, there are areas where it's, it, it is in fact worse. Uh, it's more wow. of a problem there than it is here. So this is a global problem, but it's a global problem because of the global diet. And we, we'll get into that when we start talking about the origins of it, but nevertheless, insulin resistance is a disease. It's like a coin with two sides. On one side of this coin, we have some of the body's cells aren't responding to insulin as well as they did before. This would be like the muscle cells where insulin's coming and knocking on the door, trying to move the glucose in. The muscle just doesn't respond as well. And so the doors don't open and so the glucose can't come down. So that's an obvious example of of this first side of the coin. Again, insulin doesn't work as well as it did before at some cells. On the other side of the coin, we have that insulin levels are higher than they used to be, or even I could say higher than they should be. So we have a chronically elevated insulin combined with a compromised insulin signaling or insulin action. And those two will always come together. You cannot have one without the other. Now, interestingly, so that is insulin resistance and I'm defining it in the context of, of disease, but there is instances in human development where you actually become insulin resistant for a good reason and that is puberty and pregnancy both of these times are times of kind of rapid growth in a human body even and let's talk about pregnancy just because that's more relevant to your audience I know in the case of pregnancy mom has altered insulin signaling. Some cells aren't responding as well, but others are responding perfectly well to insulin and insulin levels are higher. And this is helping mom develop uh, mammary tissue for future breastfeeding. It's also helping mom get fatter, which, you know, much to her chagrin because insulin wants to tell fat cells to grow. Um, but that's all essential because, um, the, the woman bears the metabolic burden, of course, of, of pregnancy and childbirth, where it's almost like the body's way of saying, Hey, you are doing something that is metabolically very expensive. You are growing another human being. Let's make sure you have enough energy to really take this across the finish line. And even once you've crossed the finish line, You're also going to be responsible for feeding this little baby. And so once again, that's all coming from your own fat cells, which is why when a woman breastfeeds, she actually will lose fat more quickly. But also that high insulin um, promotes the growth of the baby and it helps the, the baby get big and baby get fat and babies are supposed to be fat. Humans are supposed to be born fat for reasons that we just don't have the time to get into. So I won't, but it's all about the brain. But so we have instances where insulin resistance, well, just a couple pregnancy is the most obvious where it's supposed to happen. And then the moment the baby is born and pregnancy is over, the woman is as insulin sensitive essentially as she ever was. So it's a very acute phenomenon. But what we have nowadays is where it's not acute, it's a chronic problem. And it's entirely a result of the kind of dietary world we find ourselves living in. So that's the definition. Long-winded, I know, but I am a professor who studies, so I can't (laughs) help it. Now we know what insulin is, and now we know what insulin resistance is.
0: Thank you for explaining that. And I actually am shocked that 88% of um, people have it because I knew it was a problem today, but I had no idea it was 88%. If you were to ask me, I would have said, oh, maybe a little bit over 50%. So yeah, we definitely need to educate people on this then if this is such an issue. So let's stay basic here for my listeners. And how would someone know they had insulin resistance? Are Mm -hmm. there signs, symptoms?
1: Yeah. Yeah. Great question. So there are some easy ways to do this and then some more technical ways to determine. The easy way is... Um, a a few, there's kind of a little, a little kind of laundry list of things or a a little quiz almost we could take, which is, does someone have an immediate, um, relative who has type two diabetes? If so, that's a huge warning sign that you're going to struggle with this because type two diabetes is a disease of insulin resistance. I'd mentioned very briefly that type in type two, it's a disease of too much insulin. And that's because in, in, in insulin resistance, The insulin is high, but it's high enough and it's working well enough to keep the glucose levels normal. But it's only when the body becomes so resistant to insulin, despite swimming in a sea of insulin, now it can't keep the glucose in control. And now the glucose levels climb. And then we say it's type 2 diabetes. Mm -hmm. So, type 2 diabetes is insulin resistance that's just gone really far. So, if a person has an immediate relative with type 2 diabetes, that's a huge risk factor. If a person has high blood pressure, hypertension is almost always a result of insulin resistance. And that's why when people address their insulin resistance, their blood pressure drops and within, and within weeks, they commonly get off all of their blood pressure medications. It's a phenomenally quick response. Um, Another thing is if a person has infertility, if a woman has PCOS, that is almost certainly a sign. Uh, It would be exceptionally uncommon for there to be an exception to this. It's, almost a, certainly a certainty that she has insulin resistance and in same kind of the, the parallel, although totally different problem in men, which is erectile dysfunction, those are both the most common forms of infertility in women and men respectively in men, if he has erectile dysfunction, that is almost always a result of insulin resistance and how insulin resistance is changing the way the blood vessels work in the man. So, so those are, and then maybe one last thing I'd say, skin, um, their skin disorders. If a person has skin tags, skin tags are just these teeny little bumps of skin that kind of stick right up like a little pillar or almost like a little mushroom. This is not like a big kind of mole, a big bump, but rather a kind of a pillar or a column like little projection of skin. People will commonly get them around their neck or they'll get them around their armpits. If a person has skin tags, that's a very strong sign of insulin resistance. So those are the things someone could use to kind of look at at home. And then other than that, a person can um, actually get a blood test and look at their, get their actual insulin levels measured. And if their insulin level is, you know, around 10, in the units in the United States are micro units per mil. It'd be a little a little U and then a bigger U. Um, if, if a person has 10 micro units per mil or lower, that's a very good sign that they are insulin sensitive. If it's higher than that into the teens or into the twenties, and it can be even much higher, that's a, that's a warning sign that you're insulin resistant.
0: And that can just be done with blood work.
1: Yep. That's right. Yeah. So uh, basically the patient, when they go to the clinical visit, they'll say, Hey, can you just check the box and get my insulin measured? Commonly in the United States, it will be measured or it will be covered by insurance. But thankfully in the U S uh, you know, there's the market is so good um, that capitalism is so wonderful that you can go in almost to any clinic and get your insulin measured for, you know, for just like I don't know, 30 or 40 bucks.
0: Good to know. Okay, talking about symptoms though, is belly fat a, a sign or not necessarily?
1: Yeah, yeah, it, it certainly is. Actually, I I didn't add that to the list because there's a, there's slight differences in men and women. Um, but yeah, absolutely. If a man, I think I, I'm going to try to remember the cutoffs. If a man has a waist circumference, you know, you actually get that little fabric measuring tape and go around the biggest part of the belly. If a man has a waist circumference, that's above 110 centimeters. And I only know it in centimeters, but I am Canadian. So I'm comfortable. <laughs> we'll, with, we'll
0: convert that I'm, in I'm, the show notes.
1: Yeah. I think that's going to be, I guess, around half uh, that, but yeah. So 110 centimeters or in a woman over 90 centimeters, I think that's being a little too generous to be frank. So I, I will commonly say if a person knows they have, but I appreciate how difficult it is to say this. If they, if they know they're fatter in their midsection than they ought to be, um, then then that's that's a reason to be careful. Now I say that with some caution simply because women just store fat differently than men do. And so knowing the audience is primarily female, I I left that out because it's just not as, um, obvious, uh, of a problem. In fact, I'll say this another way where if a woman measures her waist to hip ratio, so measure the, the smallest part around the belly. Um, you know, that'll be usually just right around the belly button. And then the biggest part around the butt and hips in that waist to hip ratio in women, I think it, uh, it needs to be um, around 0. 0.8 or so. If it's higher than that, suggesting that the waist is bigger than the hips, then that's a problem. A woman, a healthy woman, should be you know kind of bigger around the butt basically than she is at the belly. Whereas the man is almost never going to be like that. And the more a woman has that phenot- uh, that fat pattern storage that is more apple like rather than pear like, then the more harmful that's going to be.
0: Okay. That's good to know. I did know that it was easier to tell in a man than a woman. Yeah. So that's good that you said yeah. that. Okay. So now why do you think insulin resistance is so prevalent today? Has it always been an issue or more so today?
1: Oh, no, no, no. It's no, not at all. I would say uh, even two generations ago, it would have been nothing. It would have been absolutely unheard oh, wow. of in um, it. Yeah. So it really does. It really is a reflection of how our dietary habits have changed. Um, And and I would say that that's almost a single variable. Sure. We could say we don't sleep as well. That matters. Um, We don't exercise the same. Well, mind you, two generations ago, no one exercised. People just maybe got up and did more. They moved more. Um, But even still, we see that people that, so exercise is helpful, but it's not the missing link. Um, It is all about the food we eat. And I think something terrible happened in the the 1970s. This was when the United States government first issued the dietary guidelines for Americans. And that was the beginning of frankly, the war on fat and this obsession with carbohydrates. And I very much blame that trend combined with the industrialization of food manufacturing perhaps, which I think kind of had its origins from World War II, where um, I, don't, I don't mean to, this is, a, this is a delicate topic in a way, because I don't mean to, I don't want to offend um, people who have different political views, but, but part of this was um, with the roles of husband and, and, and wife or mother and father changing. And once upon a time, mother really was the source of all food in the home. Um, you now, of course, there are exceptions to this, and I don't mean to sound bigoted or sexist in any way, but but with World War II, there very much was a shift in who was at home and who wasn't, and that was the beginning of kind of easily packaged, processed foods. So that I think was happening really in the nineteen fifties and forties, fifties, probably more fifties. And but then in nineteen seventy. That was really the beginning of the war on fat, and so these food manufacturers, when they were taking out the fat, so that they could have a stamp of approval of you know the American Heart, this is heart healthy, this is American Heart Association approved, um, they would take out the fat, but then that would make a, a food, of course, less palatable. We all know that if you have a, a a meal and it has no fat in it, it's going to, it's not going to be as palatable. It's not going to be as enjoyable to eat. But so as, you, as they took out the um, the fats, they well, they took out one particular type of fat, and that was saturated fats, which is a fat that is exists in nature. There's no getting away from it from natural fats, and the natural fats are animal fats and fruit fats. Fruit fats being coconuts, avocados, olives. Those are fats that our, we, as a human species, have been eating since the beginning of however our species came to be. Um, uh, and so we were taking out saturated fats and replacing them with refined oils from, say, soybean or canola. Um, and, and, and maybe I'm getting too far ahead of, our, my, uh, ahead of us in this conversation. No, you're good. But, Keep going. Okay, okay. Um, suffice it to say, uh, we started changing the way we ate, and natural fats were going to the wayside, being replaced with refined seed oils, like soybean oil, canola oil, corn oil, these so-called vegetable oils are not vegetable at all. They're seed oil. And they're from, they only, we only get them from heavily refined processes. Um, But then adding to that refined starches and sugars. So this was this explosion of both of these. So soybean oil has become the single most commonly consumed fat in the American diet. Now. So when I, when I, I point the finger at soybean oil and people will say, well, I don't eat soybean oil. Well, the vegetable oil, the big bottles that people are buying from Costco, that's soybean oil. And, and it truly, it has become the single most commonly consumed source of fat in the American diet. We eat 56,000 times more of it now than we did oh. in the early 1900s, because essentially we never ate any of that at all. Mm-hmm. But the two most common fats now, it's soybean oil and it's shortening, which is like a mix of canola and cottonseed oil. So these two kind of Franken fats, these two fake Fats that we have to have incredible technology in order to get them because mm-hmm. seeds don't give up their fats very readily. They go rancid so quickly. So they have to add deodorizers and other chemicals to them to keep them even remotely usable in the home. Um, but contrast that, though, Carolyn, with saturated fats. Saturated fats like from coconut oil or from most other animal fats, although animal fats are a mix to be perfectly Frank. They're a mix of saturated monounsaturated like olive oil in the animal fats and then polyunsaturated seed oils are pure almost purely polyunsaturated where there's a lot of double bonds in, in the fat, like in a fat molecule, this big, long stretch of little carbon atoms Um, polyunsaturated have a lot of double bonds. And those are areas where the fat can go, that's what causes the fat to go rancid. In contrast, a saturated fat, which we've all been told is the root of all evil, mm-hmm. is exceptionally stable. It's almost impossible for a f- saturated fat to go rancid, which is why your, your jar of coconut oil can essentially sit in your house for years. Mm-hmm. And while, while you can have a little jar of like bacon cooking lard or, or tallow when we used to get more fat from, say, beef, and it can just sit, literally sit on your counter and stay good. For, for weeks or months, but not with these seed oils. They, they go rancid so quickly that they have to add deodorizers um, in order to keep them from stinking. Um, so they're, they're, uh, these, are, these are exceptionally unhealthy fats and tragically we eat more of those seed oil fats than we do the traditional natural fats like those that come from animal and, and, and fruit sources. Now I emphasize fruit because the fruit fats coconut, avocado, olive, our ancestors, and even a thousand, thousands of years ago, they were getting fats from these things because all they needed to do was get the flesh of the fruit, you know, which is the olive itself or the interior part of say the coconut. And then they just press it. They just squish Mm -hmm. it and it gives its oil. So those are fats. So animal fats and fruit fats are the fats that we've literally cut our teeth on as a species. And, and we are exceptionally well um, suited to eating them. And, and so we should. So back to your original question, because boy, I've gotten distracted. Oh, no, that's good. What, what has changed? It's that we are now eating a lot of refined carbohydrates, which is not the same as fruits and vegetables. I'm not vilifying fruits and vegetables, but refined carbohydrates, processed starches, processed sugars, combined with refined oils. These two together create a wonderfully toxic mix And in nature, carbohydrates and fats don't come together, really with the exception of milk. Milk, which is when mommy mammal is feeding baby mammal, is high in all three macronutrients, carbohydrates, fats, and protein. And that is a perfect cocktail for growth. If you want a little thing to grow as quickly as possible, give it all three macronutrients, which milk does. And now you have a perfect food for growth. But other than that, in nature, you do not have carbohydrates and fats come together. And and I think there's a reason. I think there's a lesson to be learned from that. We should be very careful when we mix the two of those on one hand, because it's so bloody addicting. It's so delicious. Carbohydrates (laughs) and fats together are, it's a magic mix, Um, uh, but it's also uh, a uniquely fattening and harmful mix.
0: So the refined oils, they are causing the inflammation, correct? Or can be causing inflammation. And then you've got these refined sugars that are spiking the glucose, correct?
1: Yep. Yeah. Well said. Yeah. So yes. So on the, on the latter point, absolutely. It's 100% clear. No question. When you're spiking, when you're eating refined starches and sugars, your glucose levels will rapidly climb and insulin will go up. And then insulin will have to stay up. Depending on the health of the person, it can be up for up to four hours. Your insulin and your glucose can be elevated. Now, that has very real consequences when it comes to insulin resistance that we could come to later. Uh, But when you're pushing your insulin up too high too often, that's one of the key drivers of insulin resistance itself. Now, on the seed oil aspect, yes, that. Type of polyunsaturated fat from seed oils is called omega six. Everyone has heard of omega threes. Mm-hmm. Omega six is kind of the um the villain. Well, not necessarily, I mean, omega sixes occur in nature all over. Um, and, and so we're always getting them. It's just that now we're getting you know thousands of Too times much of more. It. Yep, yep. And omega-6 fats are the fats that can be, but not necessarily, they can be converted into another type of molecule called arachidonic acid. And then arachidonic acid can be converted into demonstrably pro-inflammatory molecules like prostaglandins and thromboxanes, these molecules that do in fact increase inflammation. Now, having said that, um, I want to just add a little note of caution. There's, there's nothing that is Absolutely or obligatorily inflammatory about omega six seed oils. That is something that is, I think, as as a scientist, I think people um, we we say that a little too readily. Mm-hmm. That, to my knowledge, just putting more omega six into the system will not increase inflammation. It's just that that those fats can be used. They're basically the fuel. That if there is any kind of signal for more inflammation this is the source. This is what's going to basically give all the building blocks the inflammation itself would need. But inflammation is a huge topic. um, And and you don't need omega-6s necessarily to play into inflammation. There's so many different routes. Inflammation is such an essential process to human health and survival. It's essentially our immune system that there are numerous redundancies there. And the omega-6 arachidonic acid pathway is one of many others. So there's a lot of inputs that play into inflammation.
0: Right. There's a lot of, a lot of things that contribute to inflammation. Yeah. But let's talk about those refined sugars again. So those refined sugars are causing these um, glucose spikes and most Americans are having these huge spikes in their diet, right? And then they're crashing and then another spike because they grab some sugary snack and then another crash. So is this up and down um, spikes? What's contributing to the insulin resistance?
1: Yep, yeah, it sure is, yeah. So I just, what we alluded to, and now what we can dive into now here is absolutely the case where, so, so one, of the, one of the key drivers of insulin resistance there, I, I consider, I'll start with this. I consider there to be three primary causes of insulin resistance. One is stress. So the key stress hormones, cortisol and, and adrenaline, each can cause insulin resistance. Second is inflammation. If a person has higher inflammation in the body that can cause insulin resistance. Now, inflammation is such a big term. It's one of those things that again, in the pop culture, we just kind of throw it around. And so I, I, I do, I I like to be a little careful saying that, but, but take something like uh, an autoimmune disease, like rheumatoid arthritis, we could pick any lupus um, uh, Crohn's disease any of these autoimmune diseases, all autoimmune diseases have kind of an, uh, an ebb and a flow. They'll, they'll be active and then they will kind of be inactive for a time. As the autoimmune disease is up, inflammation is up because it is an inflammatory attack on our body and insulin resistance goes with it. And then as say, for example, as the rheumatoid arthritis gets better, the person will note, oh boy, my hands, my, my knuckles feel so much better today. It's because the inflammation is down that day and so too is the insulin resistance. The body has become more insulin sensitive. So inflammation is another key driver. And then the last one that we've already alluded to is chronically elevated insulin. Now that is coming from these chronic excursions from the norm where a person eats a load of refined starches and sugars, glucose levels spike. Insulin will follow to try to push the glucose down and now the glucose can come down. Now, the tragedy in this paradigm is the way we've been told to eat, where we've been told we should eat diets that primarily come from carbohydrates, you know, up to 50 or more percent of all calories we're told should be from carbohydrates. And we've been told that there's a value in eating, you know, five or six little meals per day. Well, then it ends up looking something kind of like this. A person wakes up in the morning and their insulin levels are down, which is wonderful. That's a wonderful way to be insulin sensitive. And I haven't really touched on this yet, but if insulin is down, then fat cells can be giving their fat to the body to be used for energy. The fat cell can be breaking down its stored fat. That cannot happen. Zero, zero percent. It's impossible for that to happen if insulin is up. Insulin will not let fat cells break down their fat, but if insulin is down now, the fat cells are breaking down fat.
0: So that's like the and magic. The be- <laughs> that's the magic potion. You're just telling women if they want to lose I fat, sure am. keep the insulin yep, down. and
1: there's that's right. In fact, let's make sure we let's die. Let's make sure we spend some time on that because it really challenges the kind of classic. Calories in, calories out. Everything's got to be low fat. I, I very much challenge that that idea. But so if someone wakes up in the morning, insulin has finally come down overnight. And now what do we do? We spike it by eating two bagels and a glass of orange juice or, or a big bowl of cereal or pieces of toast, whatever it may be. Breakfast has become almost almost like a dessert uh, in, in, in the Western culture. Some of those
0: culture. pancake mixes are, that's for sure.
1: Oh, absolutely. Yeah. It's basically like we're giving our kids cakes. And, and, and unfortunately we we, as parents, we're under the impression that if it's fortified with vitamins, it's okay. And if we're giving them fruit juice, it's fine. That is pure garbage from top to bottom. So the person wakes up, they spike their insulin with this dessert of a breakfast that they've been told is somehow healthy. And then it takes about three hours or so for it to come back down. And right when insulin's starting to come down, what do we do? We bump it back up again. And then right when it's about to come down, now we had our mid-morning snack and now we're at lunch and then our afternoon snack and then dinner, then our evening snack. Every waking moment and well into the night is spent in a state of elevated insulin that is keeping us fat or making us fatter and is driving insulin resistance. We have to just somehow break that cycle by either saying, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to fast a little more frequently, or I'm going to focus on the macronutrients that don't elicit an insulin spike, namely fats and proteins, because fat and protein, which in nature always comes together, protein always comes with fat, I should say it that way. Those two have together, especially have little to no effect on insulin. So if someone wakes up in the morning, kind of great, you know, grandmas and grandpa's breakfast of bacon and eggs, that is almost totally going to be fat and protein or, and, and for example, I, well, I'll just say this. There's something magical about that mix. Fat and protein are supposed to come together. They're better for building muscle. It's better for digestion. Nowadays, people just want to take protein. You won't digest it as well. It will upset your stomach. Try mixing it with fat. And I almost guarantee you'll digest it better and it will be less. Um, less discomfort in the process in your stomach, but nevertheless focusing on say that as a breakfast or heaven forbid, I'm just going to fast through breakfast. I'm going to have a cup of tea and then I'm going to have just a bigger heartier lunch of protein and fat. And I'm not saying carbs are bad, but make sure you focus on the least refined carbohydrates like fruits and vegetables and have them at the end of the meal, Hmm. have your protein and your fat first, and you have the carbs at the end and your insulin response will be significantly less if you start with the carbs and then you load the protein and fat it will be high put it at the end so carbs come last
0: so that's interesting because i have a dad who is a type one diabetic and so our whole growing up you know he loved to eat the protein and the fats that's what he did well on and we had to be really careful with his carbs so all americans should really eat that way Almost oh, like we all oh, have sure. diabetes.
1: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, n- absolutely. The The great tragedy when it comes to diabetes is that the, a, a diabetic will be told, you can eat whatever you want. Just make sure you take enough insulin in to cover what you've eaten, to cover your glucose. But that's, no, a terri- that's terrible no. advice. A, a type 1 diabetic like your dad, they will often learn through experience, holy smokes, I can eat that big juicy steak and I need little to no insulin or, and and I'm going to be satisfied for six hours because of it. Mm -hmm. It's fueled my body so well, or I can eat this piece of cake or these bagels. I'm going to need, you know, 50 units of insulin easily 10 times or 20 times more than you'd need from a steak. And you're going to be hungry again about, about two hours later. And in fact, that's something I didn't mention a meal that spikes your insulin. It will, it will push all the nutrients out of the blood. Insulin wants the body to store energy. And so insulin, as it's opening doors for glucose, it's also preventing the fat cells from sharing its fat. And so the body starts to get low on glucose, low on fats, and and we start to sense that as a hunger. And so it's, it's almost like when insulin has gone up, it's pushed all the energy, all the nutrients out of the blood. And now the brain is left wondering, Hey, where's all the energy we need to eat even though there's still plenty of food working and digesting it we're storing plenty in our fat cells and in our liver cells. But the actually energy available to the brain, which has no storage capacity, it's not like fat cells, which can store a bunch of energy, the brain needs to be fed. And so when the energy in the blood goes down, the brain says, Hey, wait, energy's low, let's eat. And so it will stimulate hunger. And that's why we see when someone eats a sugary junky snack two hours later, When they have no business being hungry, they start to get hungry. It's not because there's not something in their intestines, they just ate. It's that the brain is sensing this relative reduction in energy. And that doesn't happen when someone eats a meal that is lower in refined carbohydrates and built more on protein and fat. And this has been, these are human studies I'm actually um, citing here in in my mind. You see that available energy in the blood is higher and that is why satiety is longer. One study in particular put people onto two different groups based on changes in their breakfast, the people that ate the low fat, high carbohydrate breakfast, and it was the exact same amount of calories. So it wasn't just a matter of calories. But the group that ate the, the the low fat, high carbohydrate had a much higher insulin spike, of course, and they were much hungrier, much sooner than the group that ate the exact same amount of calories, but on a lower carbohydrate, higher, um, higher fat, but same amount of protein um, type of breakfast. So a much smaller insulin release, more energy is available in the blood. They were not as hungry and were satisfied for longer. That's the key to long-term metabolic health in a way. It is regardless of the calorie number, how much are these calories that I'm about to eat going to satisfy me? How long will I be satiated rather in in, in 90 minutes? Am I going to be looking for something else or am I going to eat this and be good for six hours or, or, or so, you know, maybe at least four hours? That's the key. So it's essentially satiety per calorie rather than just calories in calories out. That old idea of we need to eat less and exercise more is based on this purely kind of caloric idea that it's just it's just kind of a bank account of calories if that idea worked we would have solved the obesity problem <laughs> decades ago I because say, we've been saying it i for say decades. that all the
0: time i know i say that all the time about calorie in, cal- or calories in calories yep. out okay so recap on all this so americans are eating too often so their glucose and too many carbs so their glucose is high it keeps their insulin high therefore the insulin can't drop and so the fat can't use their energy and we're just getting fatter as americans because more and more of us are becoming insulin resistant so there are a lot of women i know that still count their macros you know the fats the proteins the carbs but it's still a huge thing to have low fat and even mm. low fat numbers in these macro numbers, so yeah. that's wrong, right? Is what you're oh, saying?
1: Yeah, I would, I disagree with that view totally. I, I don't think we should. Um, I don't think we should worry about fat. We should not worry about protein. In fact, if anything, women need to eat more protein, and it needs to be high quality protein. And by that, I mean, I know this is not popular these days, and so I'll speak about it politely and diplomatically it must come from animal protein. Um, I, I do know that there is, uh, there's very much a sentiment nowadays that animal sourced foods, um, like meat and eggs are somehow harmful, even that they're somehow harmful for the planet, not to say that we can have better ranching practices, but the same thing can be said for farming in large scale production of fruits and vegetables. I'm not saying that there isn't room for improvement there, but there's no question. Truly, no question. This is beyond debate. The data are very clear. The best proteins for humans are animal-based proteins. Eggs and meat are the be- and dairy. Those are the best proteins a human can eat. We digest them better, and we get more of the essential amino acids that are that come from those animal proteins.
0: I know, at least back in the '90s, going back to fats with animals. Back in the '90s, it was a very low-fat um, media push. I mean. I remember counting my fat grams and would be really happy if I got under 10 for the day, because, you know, we were supposed to be no fat and low fat and non-fat and everything was. So it's good that you're educating, you know, on this podcast that we do need our fats, that they are healthy and we need those proteins.
1: In fact, let me, yeah, Carlin, in fact, uh, let me just put a fine point on that sentiment. If a woman wants to, anyone, woman or, or fella, if they want to count anything, well, I hate counting, so I won't even say that. I would just say scrutinize your carbohydrates. Protein and fat, I, I say you can be as liberal with those as your hunger wants you to be. Don't, there's no need to count either protein or fat. Just let that be part of what you're naturally eating. Um, you know, Get your protein sources, and then whatever fat is coming with that, then that's great. But it's the carbohydrates that we need to be careful with.
0: Okay. So let's talk about insulin resistance with some of these health issues out there, because for instance, I have a lot of followers who deal with PCOS. So how do those two, how does PCOS and insulin resistance work with each other? Why, like you said earlier, why is that related to PCOS?
1: Yeah. Oh, it's, I'm so glad you're bringing this up. Uh, So uh, uh, female fertility is very complicated. I like to joke that while Uh, Male fertility is like a barbershop quartet. Female fertility is like an orchestra. There's so many moving parts and it's all hormone related. So many hormones that have to play together in concert for fertility to work. Naturally, one of the primary part of this orchestra are the hormones called the estrogens. That's one little lesson there for the audience. There's no such thing as estrogen There's no hormone called estrogen. It's a family of hormones that are called collectively the estrogens. And that stands kind of opposite or working with um, another group of hormone called the androgens. And the estrogens are the prototypical female hormones. Androgens like testosterone and dihydrotestosterone, those are the prototypical male sex hormones. But of course, both sexes have these hormones in them. Men need estrogens and women need androgens. You have, we, we have them both in both sexes to be healthy. So in the case of female fertility, right prior to her ovulating, ovulation happens because there's been this enormous spike in estrogens. So estrogens go up and this big rise or spike in estrogens is what ultimately opens the door from the ovary allowing the egg to come out. That is ovulation. Now, prior to that happening, both ovaries have been developing multiple potential eggs, what are called follicles. So in both ovaries, and there can, it will, any month, it'll be a different number of of follicles developing than any other month. How many are in one ovary may change from the next month to the other ovary. So there's no, nothing, no rhythm to that, but multiple follicles will be developing the high estrogen level will result in one becoming the dominant and it will ovulate. After that has happened, <clears throat> there's a signal, once again, hormone based that actually has all the other follicles that have been growing to tell them to go away. They degrade to nothing. And so the ovaries, which had been growing with all these little follicles, one pops off and ovulates, then the ovaries lose all the other follicles and it shrinks back to where it was ready to do it all the next month. But of course, to rewind that, the pivotal moment was this big spike in estrogens that come from the ovaries. Now, to bring this back to a metabolic view, in, in, in PCOS, that big estrogen spike doesn't happen. And so the ovaries are developing all these follicles. And in the absence of the estrogen spike, we fail to have that ovulation of one of them. And so all those follicles stick around. they they don't get the signal to go away. And so that big, that expansion, that growth of the ovaries and those little follicles become cysts, Mm. lots of little cysts, Um, a cyst is just basically like a little bubble of of fluid. And now um, the cycle starts to kind of start again, although it never really ended. We once again have the monthly uh, cycle coming, the ovaries get more follicles, And we don't have an estrogen spike, so we don't have ovulation. And the ovaries get bigger and bigger and bigger. And that becomes, of course, very painful to the woman. Now, the failure of the estrogen spike is almost always a result of too much insulin. Mm. So let's, if we dive back into the ovary, all estrogens, actually, whether it's ovaries or testes, because this happens in men and women, all estrogens were once androgens. That's just a simple fact of sex hormone, um, biology that you have the, the testes and the ovaries will make say testosterone. And then there's going to be a, a, an enzyme, a protein that will convert testosterone into the estrogens. And that's an enzyme called aromatase. And so a woman naturally has more aromatase than a man does. She's converting more of her testosterone or androgens into estrogens. Men are doing it too, just much, much less Insulin, unfortunately, when insulin levels are going up in the blood, it inhibits aromatase. So, this enzyme that's attempting to convert the androgens to estrogens is essentially turned off. And now, her ovaries that wanted to be making lots of estrogens have no choice but to make lots of androgens like testosterone. So, the combination of this it results in two kind of critical events in the woman with PCOS one, she fails to ovulate through the process that we just described. She doesn't have the estrogen spike, so no ovulation. But two, and that's a result of the absence of the estrogens, relatively. Two, she has too much androgens, like testosterone. And so then she can start to experience other signs of PCOS that aren't overtly harmful, like the PCOS is, where it's hurting her body and making her infertile. In this case, it's just making things frustratingly awkward, perhaps, where she'll start to have acne like, like a, almost like a teenage, a teenager would cause testosterone's so high. Mm. And she may start to have more hair on her body again, because of the testosterone and she can start to have male pattern baldness, which is once again, in men, a result of high testosterone. So those are all, those are all the kind of off um, target effects, if you will, or, or indirect consequences of PCOS, which again, at its core is a disease of insulin resistance or too much insulin that comes with insulin resistance, and how that elevated insulin is hurting the way the ovaries want to be working when it comes to sex hormones.
0: So interesting. Um, I yeah, I find it fascinating that insulin plays such a big role in all of that. But now I know my listeners are saying, okay, in these high, too much insulin is contributing to my weight gain, or to my type two diabetes, or to my PCOS. And I know they're wondering, like, well, what do I do? Is there a way to bring yeah. down this insulin resistance? Can you, is it reversible?
1: Yeah, yeah. Great question. Absolutely. 100% resounding yes. Um, there's every reason to be exceptionally optimistic. In fact, insulin resistance can, it can almost fully resolve within just weeks. Um, and we, in fact, published a manuscript working with a local a Revere clinic here in Utah Valley, where we took... M- only women, the entire population set was women who had full-blown type 2 diabetes. And within just 90 days, their di- type 2 diabetes was totally gone. There was not a single clinical marker of it. Wow. Never a single medication taken. No pill popped whatsoever. So, yes, there's tremendous reason to be hopeful. And once again, the ideas are simple. And I'll lay them out as four pillars. Um, and I'll just say now, not to put a shameless plug in, all these topics are things I go into in, in, in a book that I published last year called why we get sick. So anyone who wants to learn more about all of this and more certainly go check out that book. So four pillars first control carbohydrates. Now, as we've stated, I don't mean don't eat any, but I do believe that carbohydrates are the greatest offender where our dietary habits are now almost totally based on packaged processed carbohydrates. So if your carbohydrates come in a bag or a box with a barcode, (laughs) then you're doing it wrong. You, you want to get your carbohydrates from fruits and vegetables, but eat them. Don't drink them. That's, that's something I I really want to just make clear. Don't drink fruit juice and and don't even, I just say, be very careful with, with drinking your carbohydrates. That's not how they're meant to come. We're supposed to chew them and eat them with the fiber intact. As you mentioned, fiber, we
0: need the fiber. Uh,
1: Yeah. So one control carbohydrates and then two and three kind of come together because in nature they do prioritize protein, make sure you're getting enough high quality protein. And usually your appetite can tell you if you're getting enough, but if someone wants to, I almost hate to say this because counting is so miserable, but you want to be getting around one and a half grams of protein per kilogram of ideal body weight. So if someone's very, very overweight, they want to kind of Peg that to where they know they want to get to, but if I if a person is um, 60 kilograms, then then they want to be getting around uh, 90 grams of protein per day.
0: I'm gonna have to get my calculator out to convert that to pounds. I, I know. I'm sorry. Know I just
1: <laughs> it's the scientist in me <laughs> uh, where these imperial the, the, these imperial units don't really work for science. Uh-huh. It's all metric. <laughs> yeah. So. It's, it's, it's pretty simple. Anyone can figure that out on Google or something. So yeah, one and a half grams of protein per kilogram. That's an ideal target. So prioritize protein and whatever fat is coming with that protein. That's kind of the next point. Don't fear fat, let enjoy fat, enjoy it even liberally, I would say. Um, but make sure it's coming from animal and fruit sources. So things like butter or coconut oil or the fats that are naturally coming with your, with your beef. And I buy my beef from a local little ranch here. And in the mountain West, I can guarantee someone can always find a little local rancher they can buy their meat from. And that's what we do in in my family. So um, don't don't fear fat. And then the final pillar is fast. Uh, It's okay to take a break from eating. Um, um, I, uh, I, I usually will have a full 24 hour fast every week. And then within the week, um, I'm typically d- fasting through breakfast. It's a very common thing. I just have a cup of herbal tea or, or something similar for breakfast. And then I'll eat a big hearty lunch. And then I'll try to have a more modest dinner. My one note of caution when it comes to fasting, a lot of people nowadays are doing one meal a day or OMAD or OMAD. And that can be done very wrongly. If, If a person is kind of building up their hunger pressure all day and they only eat dinner, very often they will overeat because it's dinner and evening when we are at our weakest. That's when we are most susceptible to bad food, to food temptations. So I would say be very careful, but it's also the social meal. So it's hard to fast through dinner all the time because you want to sit down with your family and they're all eating and you're just sort of sitting there watching them awkwardly eat. No, we want to eat with our family. Um, So my encouragement, though, would be really stack up on lunch. Let that be a big, full, filling, satiating meal, and then let dinner be a little more modest. And then once dinner is over, you're done stop eating at around six or seven you will sleep so much better and your insulin will come down so much faster that you'll just get into an insulin sensitizing fat burning state much earlier in the night and then throughout that rest of that day
0: so people could be burning fat if their insulin is down during their while they're sleeping
1: oh oh, absolutely that's right carlin anytime insulin is down and the power of like those, those rules I just mentioned, controlling carbs, prioritizing protein, not fearing fat. If you're doing it that way, then usually even when you're eating your insulin is barely going to go up. And and that really is like, if someone has a salad, for example, like a big hearty salad, your insulin is barely moving. It's barely moving. Those, those kind of cruciferous vegetables are almost totally inert when it comes to insulin. So yeah, even when you're eating, if you're keeping insulin modest, then you're still primarily relying on fat because the body is a hybrid it's burning. It's getting its energy from fat or glucose or, or blood sugar. And when insulin is up, the body goes to sugar burning. When insulin is down, the body goes to fat burning. This is very, very well documented and it shifts within just minutes. The moment you spike your insulin, you turn off your fat burning and now your body's being fueled by sugars. And that's not a great way to be. That's not a great way to lose fat or keep it off.
0: Wow. If, if women knew this, it would change how they, oh my goodness, how they eat everything. Cause it yeah. is so calorie in calorie out, low fat. So I love that you're sharing this, but I know they're going to ask me about um, fasting after you've talked about this. So are you claiming like a 16, 17, 18 hour fast?
1: Yeah. So I think when someone can do that, that's a wonderful way Um, to eat. So what's commonly called like an 18, six or something like that, where they fast for 18 hours and then they eat during a six hour window that can work exceptionally well. And it usually becomes quite effortless because a lot of people aren't hungry in the morning. We've just been told this idea that, Oh, breakfast is the most important meal of the day. Honest to goodness, that is purely a marketing That, that, that actual idea started from marketing companies, marketing cereals, There's nothing true about that. No meal is inherently um, more important uh, than any other meal. That's a total myth. It, It truly is. There's nothing magical about breakfast. But if you're not hungry at breakfast, don't eat. If you are hungry, I would say eat a good, hearty, big breakfast. There's an old maxim that went something like this. Breakfast like a king, lunch like a prince, dinner like a pauper. (laughs) that's the perfect way to eat. So if you are hungry in the morning, then you do it. You eat and be serious about it. Have a nice lunch. Eat
0: the eggs and bacon, not the bagel and orange juice.
1: Yep. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. Follow those principles um, with the macronutrients. And then, and then when you're hungry, you eat, but then there's something to be said for saying, all right, I'm now, I'm going to do a 24 hour fast, say once a week. When you We basically have to know that as as human adults, we are capable of fasting. We have so much energy stored in our bodies that even a lean guy, I'm a relatively lean middle-aged dude, I have hundreds of thousands of calories stored as fat on my body. I could literally not eat a single calorie for weeks and, and survive. Now, I'm not advocating this. But you can certainly do this, it's possible. I, but again, I almost hate saying this lest someone just jump in and say, I'm gonna starve myself. No, because fasting can kind of turn into a form of, it's almost like a, a different form of bulimia right. where they, 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 they purge, where they're not eating for 24 hours, then they just gorge themselves sick. Then they, um, and then they purge by fasting for another 24 hours. That's not a good way to do it. But yeah, back to your question, um, within a 24 hour window, I think there's tremendous value to having some structured days, maybe not every day, but maybe it's, all right, I fast for 24 hours from Sunday night to Monday night. And then, and I drink water and I'm drinking fluids, um, but I'm not taking in calories. And then on Wednesday and Friday, I'm going to have 18, six eating windows, you know, for examples, any number of ways people could do this. I personally only, the only structure I have is that I will have an absolute 24 hour fast every week, And then the remaining days of the week, I do, in fact, just go off of my hunger in the morning, which is usually a result of how hard my workout was the day before. Hmm. Um, And if I had a really hard workout, I'm typically going to be hungrier in the morning and I want to eat. I want my body to get that energy and the building blocks from the protein to be able to keep whatever muscle, you know, a middle-aged guy is going to get.
0: Okay. So I have to ask this really fast because I have a lot of moms that follow, um, my kids are starving in the morning, though, before school, and I don't mm-hmm. want to send them hungry. So no, I no, do no, give no. them a good breakfast.
1: Oh, abs- Oh, yeah, yeah. Thank you. Please, yes. I'm talking about we adults, okay, who are done growing, or and in some instances need to grow a little less. You know, depending on the direction we're measuring <laughs> our height.
0: Okay, so, I'm glad you clarified um, yeah, that. Yeah. So when
1: it comes to kids, I never, never would enforce any kind of fasting regimen on kids. Never, zero, ever. Um, with, with me and my family, my strategy with my kids is I don't even, I I'm much more liberal with my kids eating foods that I don't eat. Um, as a grown adult who, you know, I went bald early and I figured the only thing I got now is looking good in a swimming suit. (laughs) So I, I have a particular motivation to stay lean. Um, but no, my kids, I'm much more liberal with them. Not that we have a lot of junk food and we almost never have cereal my my rules if there are any i want my kids to get protein because that is what's deficient in processed foods protein is expensive especially from animal sources the best sources and so that's the first thing that's taken out of of packaged foods so we have very little packaged foods um and and breakfast is homemade every day i usually make it myself it's bacon and eggs some days of the week it's my kind of really egg heavy crepes that I make with full cream and a little bit of Nutella, which I don't mind a bit, and I know people can make Nutella at home. We have before, um, so it's crepes a couple of days a week. It's pancakes, and and I these are made with flour because you just can't make a good pancake without flour, really. And I mean, it you maybe you can, but I can't, and so I don't even try. I don't mind if my kids have have flour. Um, none of them have any apparent um, sensitivity to gluten, but any whatever. My point being. And they use syrup with butter on these, but it's always a home cooked breakfast. Every morning I make it. um, And I have a schedule that allows me to do that. And that's important enough for me to make make it a priority, but we never have cereal in the house. That's just not a culture. That was a fight we never had to have with the kids because they just weren't raised that way. Um, they will have uh, commonly, they'll have sandwiches for lunch, but we always have cheese sticks. We have these little pepperonis that the kids love to eat. I love getting my kids to eat eggs any way I can. I consider eggs and that one-to-one balance of protein to fat in an egg. I think it's one of God's most perfectly packaged foods and they're so versatile. You can do so much with eggs. Um, and, and, and then dinner is what dinner is going to be. And and I, my, as much as I adhere to my own dietary rules, um, another rule is I eat dinner with the family. And so if I've been really strict with breakfast and strict with lunch, now my wife tends to see nutrition the same way I do. um, but even still, if dinner is going to be pasta and I would say, boy, that's a lot of carbs. I don't care. I'm going to eat dinner with my family. If there's a way for me to maybe cut out some of the carbs and focus more on the protein and fat, I will without it being disruptive, you know, to the dynamic, but I just never want, I want my kids to be raised in a home where they are used to eating real food and they enjoy it. They have a taste for it so that when they leave the house, they don't get tempted to buy skim milk and zero fat yogurt and whatever, low fat cheese. I want them to know that food is real. And, and I want them to not fear fat and to focus on protein because that's, again, I think that's the macronutrient that most kids are going to get deficient in as they eat foods from bags and boxes with barcodes.
0: I love that. Um, I have taken a lot of your time, but I have two quick questions to ask you Mm -hmm. how, okay. A lot of Americans are dealing with too much stress and stress plays a role in insulin resistance. So what do you suggest for that? And then two, do you suggest daily exercise to help lower the insulin resistance as well? So stress and exercise.
1: Yeah, wonderful question. And they, in a way, kind of play together. So yeah, stress is a key variable. Unfortunately, of those three, the three primary causes I mentioned earlier of insulin resistance, stress, inflammation, chronically elevated insulin, I don't often elaborate on the inflammation and the stress because it's just hard to control those. You can can change your insulin by just changing what you eat, but stress in particular, that's such a vague kind of big thing. There's so many environmental inputs and and our own minds that play into this. So I will only mention one because almost anything else is, it's just fruitless because I can say, well, you have stress because of bad relationships, fix your relationships. And someone's thinking, yeah, great. Thanks, Ben. How am I (laughs) going to do that? Um, So stress is one of those. It's just harder to really get a firm grasp on. Um, And I say this, and yet I'm a hypocrite in saying it um, because I I struggle with it so much, but that is good sleep. Mm. I would say good sleep is because sleep deprivation is a stress. Sleep deprivation causes insulin resistance even within a day, although it can be resolved within a day of good sleep because of what it does to cortisol and epinephrine. If you sleep poorly, those stress hormones are up then insulin resistance goes up, not to mention just the other consequences of being tired and sleep deprived. So I would say if there's any one thing to point a finger at, it's going to be better sleep habits. And for me, that is almost entirely a function of not eating into the evening. You know, we always talk about blue light and screens and I think that matters, Um, I really do. But that's a far smaller input for me personally than just making sure I'm going to bed without my stomach being stuffed with food. That is the greatest predictor of whether I'm going to have a good night or not. Good to know. So that's the stress component. <clears throat> now, to mention exercise, it's interesting because exercise is a stress It's something that's hard for the body, but it's a good stress where it challenges the body and the body ends up better on the back end of it. Of course, I am a huge advocate of exercise um, in part, well, for numerous benefits, but one being when a muscle is working, it's contracting and relaxing. That process actually opens those glucose doors without insulin ever having to come and knock. So the moment someone starts exercising, insulin will come down and it will stay down during the exercise and well beyond. And part of it is that the muscle is so hungry that it's just pulling in the glucose. It has its own way of forcing those doors open, but only when it's exercising, that is not something that will happen when the exercise has stopped. So it's an insulin independent way of controlling blood glucose and, and thus, lowering glucose, lowering insulin and being more insulin sensitive on the back end. Now, one note of caution, if someone exercises, they have an insulin sensitizing benefit to that exercise. But if they finish their exercise by eating starches and sugars, they undo the insulin sensitizing benefit of the exercise. And that matters because so many people, they exercise and they start drinking Gatorade. Or they exercise and they go get a fruit smoothie, which, which often is loaded with sugar, and you have undone all of the insulin sensitizing benefit of the exercise. That's a human study that I'm, I'm citing, actually. So published human data. So exercise is helpful, but don't become permissive with what you eat on the back end. Too commonly, they say, I just exercised. I'm going to go get that big smoothie or that, that big sugary Coke, not to say diet soda, or liquid um, which does IV. not affect insulin. Yeah.
0: Yeah. That is yeah. Full so of sugar. So eat something.
1: Yep, that's right. Keeps keep your blood sugar down. Don't load the system with sugar. If you need anything, focus on protein and fat if you're hungry at the end of your exercise.
0: Oh, that is great. You have taught so much. I could pick your brain for another two hours because I still have a whole list of questions. So Yeah, we didn't
1: even talk about Alzheimer's. I and know and- <laughs> so
0: many things. I there's too many. We'll just have to have you on another show because yeah. Really, I have a whole list here. I didn't even get to. Um, Thank you so much for spending your time here and teaching my listeners. I really appreciate it. I love that they, one, learned what insulin resistance is and how that's affecting weight gain and type 2 diabetes and those types and PCOS and those types of things. But I love that you taught that they can do something about it. Reducing, I mean, increasing their fats and proteins, reducing those carbs, better sleep, not eating before sleep, fasting. So thank you for all these tidbits. Um, tell my listeners where they can find you.
1: Mm, yeah, thanks. Uh, so I am, I'm mostly active nowadays on Instagram. It's funny. It used to be Twitter, but Twitter is just such a hostile place that I've <laughs> retreated from it. Instagram just a bunch of happy folks, generally. So people can find me on Twitter, uh, sorry, Instagram, where I put out usually a time or two a week, a little video snippet about human metabolism. And it's just my effort to, to truly want to be kind of an everyman's professor sharing what I know about human me- metabolism. And people can find me at Ben Bickman PhD, and there's no C in Bickman. So just Ben and B I K M a N PhD. And I regularly contribute blog content to a, a site and a company that I created with a couple of my brothers called health code HLTH. And the website is get health HLTH.com. Um, and then, um, also, a uh, we have, I have a coaching platform that I co-founded called InsulinIQ.com, and that's just to try to help people who want to do low-carb diets. Um, that's just a way to try to make it as easy as possible. And of course, I already mentioned my book, Why We Get Sick.
0: Great. Thank you so much. I close all of my podcasts with asking my guests what they think the best ingredient in life is. What would you say it is? <clears throat>
1: Yeah. What a wonderful question. And I actually kind of revel in the opportunity to not speak as a scientist for a moment, because I'm more than just a scientist, uh, of course. Uh, Right as I was leaving my home as a 19-year-old about to go across, literally across the world to Russia, to live in Russia for two years, um, to be a missionary for my church, my dad, who had sent already seven sons on missions uh, for for our church, I was the last, um, he told me advice that I'll that I think to me is one of the best ingredients for a good life. And that is uh, take your duties seriously, but not yourself. And Mm. that is, as I have aged and, and thought about that sentiment and saw my interaction with the world, specifically with other people and, and how happy or content or unhappy or discontent people are, I, I, that, that, Maxim has stuck with me, but the idea is at its simplest, you are we are adults, we have responsibilities in life, and we ought to take those responsibilities seriously and do them, complete them, perform those tasks to the best of our abilities, but we are all flawed people trying to do our best and learn. And that is where the not taking yourself seriously comes in. It's not that we're all a bunch of goofballs. It's that we acknowledge that we're fallible and we laugh at our mistakes and we invite others to laugh at their own mistakes. That is something I feel is so important. It's not to take ourselves so seriously. But again, it's not that we're making little silly jokes all the time. It's not at all what I'm saying. It's we acknowledge that we have make mistakes. And so be quick to laugh at our own foibles and invite others to do the same. We're not laughing at them, we laugh with them. And there's something that can be so inviting about that kind of laughter and and almost collegiality. But again, that is not um, because we don't take life seriously. We very much do. We take those duties seriously, but not ourselves.
0: Oh, I love that because life is just a big set of lessons for us to learn and grow through. And none of us are perfect at any of those lessons. And so if we can look at life that way, like we have all these lessons to learn and grow and we are going to mess up some of them really badly, but if we can laugh about it and move on and be better because of it, then we have done our great duty. So I love that perspective on life. Thank you so much for sharing that. And again, thank you so much for being here. I really appreciate it. And If you guys wanna learn more about insulin resistance and how this is affecting us so much, especially here in America, well, and all over the world, follow Dr. Ben Bickman on Instagram, check out his book and you won't regret it. Thank you.
1: Thank you, this was a pleasure.
0: Thank you so much for listening. Remember to subscribe to the Just Ingredients podcast to learn more about your health and good ingredients to life. Plus get daily tips at just dot ingredients on Instagram.